Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Steve, how's it going? That's a beautiful red shirt you have on today. Thanks, man. You too. <laughs> We're both wearing red shirts for some odd reason. Today, I was a little casual. It's been a busy day with... Uh, Amelia was actually sick today, so I had to scramble around and... Uh, I guess this will be our uh, Star Trek episode. <laughs> Where we all die at the end. <laughs> yes. We're not going to make it. You know, Galaxy Quest is a very underrated uh, movie. That's one of my uh, favorite uh, Star Wars. Is that the Danger Danger Star Robinson? Trek. Danger Danger. No, no, no. That's, uh, that's with uh, Tim Allen and uh, Sigourney Weaver. And they, oh. they play on all of the tropes from uh, Star Trek. Gotcha. That's great. I love Sigourney Weaver. She is uh, Ripley is my hero. <laughs> She's awesome. You know, before before feminism was cool, uh, you know, Alien with like Ooh, movies never have strong female characters. Need I show you Alien? <laughs> yeah. She was great. And there are many before that, too. Yeah, she is really great in that. Um, I think I think I think somebody I saw a meme once on somebody that uh, um, perfectly summarized Alien uh-huh. like uh, it's. And it was it goes something like this: uh, Lady expert tells people what they're that they're doing something unsafe. Those people don't listen to the lady. Those people die. Lady survives. <laughs> That's a great summary of a two hour and a half hour movie. <laughs> that movie terrified me as a kid. You know, I don't remember seeing all of it. I've seen bits and pieces, but I jumped right to the second one, Aliens. But yeah, I, Aliens is great. Too. I should go back and watch it. See, it's, it's definitely worth revisiting yeah. uh, on the regular. What were you about to say? Let's, let's kick off the episode. I, I think you were uh, mentioning something about your phone recently. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, for like the past 11 months, how I was telling you that, you know, it would be being that we're stuck at home, stuck working from home. It would be a really dumb idea to go ahead and replace your phone. I mean, <laughs> Who the, the only that? reason like, like, like phones are like all of their, their processing power, their cameras, their screens are so nice and so advanced today that, uh, you know, there, there's no place, there's no point in upgrading. Um, especially since the only reason you would upgrade a, your mobile device is due to uh, the battery going bad. Right. You know, your right. battery doesn't hold as much charge anymore. It doesn't last as long anymore. Or you can't, and can't do updates it, it, anymore. I can't found do that, updates anymore. Don't have that problem as a Google phone. Uh, if you have a Google phone, you get all the Android updates before yeah. anybody else does, which yep. I really like. I, um, but like with the batteries, you know, you, you get to a certain point where like the, the gauge, like the, the, the battery level isn't even accurate anymore. <laughs> Like on a new phone, you can get the battery all the way down to like 0%. It'll actually say 0% on the screen. Sure. And, you know, that doesn't make sense in my mind, but, and before it shuts off. Um, As for like with a worn battery, you know, like with my phone, I'll get it down to like 30%. And if I get a Snapchat notification, (laughs) not even opening Snapchat, sometimes just the Snapchat notification will shut my phone off. (laughs) You know, it's the battery is that shot. It's that kaput. Uh, Anyway, I've been telling people and I've been saying on the podcast, you know, don't do it. You're a dummy. If you replace your phone in the middle of a work from home pandemic, (laughs) Uh, 
Last night at 3 a.m., I went ahead and ordered a new phone. <laughs> yeah, the 3 a.m. big purchase. I like it. That's usually yeah, what I do all Close to $800, <laughs> 3 a.m., you know, no big deal. Now, to be fair, you buy your words like uh, unsubsidized from the uh, phone companies, right? So it's unlocked. Uh, yeah phone right so it's going to be pretty pricey which are generally above 500 600 bucks yeah i f- i forget if um i mean google does have financing but sure know, sure i can afford it you know uh, there's I don't mean to sound like i'm flexing or anything but there's like, a, it's just two good observations from there one it, that you bought a phone during the pandemic which is which is funny but you know it happens you know i'm running into issues with my tablet where the tablet i have is so old um the uh, programs recognize the age of the tablet and won't force an update for individual programs. Uh, trying to update Google Duo, it literally said your tablet's too old. <laughs> I thought that was a slap in the face, but that's fine. Uh, the second one is uh, social media apps are killers. I mean, both for their phone and just useless in general. I th- That's probably the second most used type of app on my phone. You know, you could say business applications like email yeah. and calendar that's probably one of the higher ones games is probably the next category and then social media and if that category died no one would really be impacted to be honest i don't think i think our lives would be better if uh i mean if, if you think about what, what, are, what are the negative impacts of social media being wiped out <laughs> um well, if you remember the main purpose of social media back when Facebook was created, mm-hmm. it it was to just stay connected with people. Sure, it'd be a lot harder to stay connected with people. Okay, that's your first negative, sure. and that's the primary negative because right. if you think about it, that was the purpose of social media. Right, uh, at least things like Facebook and MySpace, uh, which is not a thing anymore. And <laughs> guess what? We're fine without MySpace. <laughs> uh, in some cases, we would like to go back because Facebook is so much worse. But um, you know, the other negative is uh, um, for people like me who are terrible at remembering people's birthdays, <laughs> Facebook's got your back. Facebook, but, the uh, birthday reminder. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'd rather have like a, I'd rather just like sack up and just, Steve, how about you just, everything has a calendar app. How, how about you just write these things down? You know, there's no shame in like texting people yeah. right now. Hey. When's your birthday? Yeah. And just entering it right there in your yeah. calendar. Do yeah. it now. You yeah. know, reach out to some people that you don't need Facebook. You just reach out to some people right now that you care about their birthday and uh, find it out. Even if it's your mom, it's terrible if you don't know your mom's birthday. I don't. It's okay. <laughs> it's what I had Facebook for. Uh, I, when I first signed up, uh, I think that birthday was optional. And then later on, they kept asking me for my birthday. So I was nervous about that data in general being migrated because usually your birthday for a lot of like password resets and yeah. medical stuff. So I put in a random date that's close to it, like, you know, like November 1st, you know, some random year. So when I get notifications on Facebook from people that say happy birthday on that wrong day, then I realize those are people <laughs> that don't know me. <laughs> like, nice. like this goober. <laughs> nice. Oh, wow. I that feel bad for really them. screw me up. Yeah. I would, I would be. That would be, I would be one of those goobers. No, <laughs> no doubt about it. But, but that, um, yeah, like I, I got to tell you. Um, so when I get new phones, which isn't often, but when I do get a new phone, um, whether it's a replacement because something happened to the last one, Google's really good about throwing free replacements at you. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I get a new phone, you know, they, you have the option to like uh, put the phones next to each other mm-hmm. and, the one will fully mirror the other one, then you can 
you know, factory reset the other one and send right. it back. Right. Um, that's really convenient. But I am one of those weirdos <laughs> that actually likes a fresh start. Oh. I'll log into like my Google account mm-hmm. and I'll manually move things over that I know I want and I'll leave some things be that I haven't touched in. That's cool. Maybe as the last time I touched that app was yep. when I installed it and it was a mistake. Um, so I, I like to do a manual. Do a fresh uh, restart. Uh, yeah, fresh yeah. restart when I get a new phone. That's good. I'm thinking, because I'm jealous of you and Russ who don't have <laughs> Facebook accounts. Like, I mean, I, you know, some people might judge you guys, but I actually am, am impressed that, and, and I know a few other people that have gone the way of, you know, just totally getting Facebook out of their life. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking when this new phone comes in, I might, I might uh, delete my, not, I'll probably keep my account up. Yeah. You but keep your account. I, I just might delete be done with it. Yeah. I might be done with it. It's funny because Facebook keeps trying to get back at me because when they bought Instagram, now it says Instagram owned by Facebook. And now they purchased yeah. WhatsApp, which they're, they might be in trouble for. But uh, at our church, we started using WhatsApp for our, um, uh, Sabbath schools and now Facebook goes down. They keep trying to get get back to me. <laughs> the tentacles yeah. are reaching me. Yeah, yeah. that's and you, really scary. And you mentioned the uh, the three AM purchase. I, I mapped out my financial hobbies for this year, and I'm looking at my next RC car. So, uh, <gasps> quick recap: I have a, a road going RC car, which is massive. It's the it's almost as big as my real car. It's <laughs> it's a one to scale. It's you know almost two feet, twenty seven inches long by. Wow. 12 inches uh, wide so it's it's a big guy um the next car i'm looking at is an off-road vehicle so it's like um like a baja style the one i'm looking at is like an open wheel uh, i was looking at short yeah. course road uh, truck styles uh but this one's fairly big uh and it's a little bit larger power because it's off-road uh, so stepping up from a six cell which is my on-road to the eight cell which is the off-road style uh, and i think most of them are around 30 pounds so this is Almost as heavy as my six-year-old daughter at this point. It's going to be a problem when I crash into the side of the house. <laughs> tell me, tell me, um, I would be, if I was in that hobby, I'm not going to lie. I think I might make a one-six scale garage too. I Are have, you going to do something like that? I was thinking about that because the, oh, that'd be so cool. the battery gets uh, crushed on my on-road because I just go full throttle back and forth. So I was actually thinking about making uh, or getting a smaller car that has better battery life and actually getting a, a, a tow bed, putting that on the tow bed, driving it to like the park nearby, offloading it, then driving around and driving back into a garage. I don't know, man. It's, it's... And then you're going to need a one-six scale Prius. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. So many hobbies. So many so many things I could do. And it's, you, you asked the question about how accurate the, um, the scales are. Um, the yeah. the proportions are are interesting because when you scale down to a certain size where you cross a threshold where the mechanics don't quite work out that well so like the shocks on the uh, RC car are actually uh, oil oil shocks uh, okay. instead of instead gas, of gas yeah so when you transition at that small scale I don't think gas works as a very good dampener at that scale so that's when you uh, that sure. that weight and that size so then you switch to oil some kind of fluid gas, but the arrangement is still the same where it's a piston inside of a uh, spring. Uh, and it's, uh, the on-road car is all fully independent suspension, uh, and it's mostly plastic. Um, you know, there's modifications that you could do to uh, make it metallic, which is interesting on the manufacturing side because 
the pl the OEM parts are all uh, plastic inject injection molded. Uh, the aftermarket parts are CNC machined components, um, probably out of rot. Some of them are cast, depending on where you buy it from. Uh, but the new trend is to actually buy flat plate um, carbon fiber and actually machine your uh, components out of that. So as long as there's a flat plate, like a lot mm -hmm. of the strut uh, supports are and a lot of the uh, the base, the floor base of the uh, cars are flat generally. Uh, yeah. So those are actually just, uh, you know, small garage shops that have a, a CNC router. Uh, hopefully they're following some good safety protocol for machining the carbon fire, but they just come in there with a diamond uh, uh, bit and machine away the flat plate and buy yourself carbon yeah, fiber I, I components. I hope they're actually using... I don't think there's an excuse to not use a proper composite end mill, right? right. Uh, a composite cutting end mill, yep. Because I'm, you know, I don't use that stuff. But when I'm swiping through Instagram, I see advertisements for uh, those awesome-looking end mills that are right. like it's crazy because you know, you look at a standard conventional end mill and it kind of looks like a drill bit. In right. fact, you know, it's when I'm showing people what back when we were in the office and I would take people who had never seen a machine tool over to the test bed, I'd show them, you know, the, the pocket NC and they'd be like, Oh, and, and, and what's, what's the deal with this gold or bluish drill bit? And I'm like, <laughs> that is not a drill bit. That is an end mill. But like, you look at like uh, end mills that are specifically designed for uh, milling, multiple layers of composite right they actually don't look as much like a drill bit yeah they still kind of have a little bit of the shape sure but if anything it actually looks like a tire tread a tire tread or if you take a file and kind of wrap it around the cylinder it's it's got yeah, that uh, very high that too. diamond uh, pattern. So it and, yeah, and depends. the purpose is to not separate the layers right. of composite yep. to, to prevent separation yeah. which is really cool but yeah hopefully uh I got to ask something else because, you know, talking about the scales of the individual components on the RC car, um, you know, I asked you that question offline before we were recording. Um, so the suspension components uh -huh. and, you know, they're not, you know, they use oil instead of gas. Um, do they do other stuff? Like is, is there like remote reservoir on some of the uh, suspension components? They use mono tube or some uh, uh, dual tube. Uh, dampers yeah. or is that too small i think that's for, too uh, small i think you start getting into you know the size of the molecules things like that and versus the valve size so most of them are single tube I, there are no okay. reservoirs because they're not just now when you get into like the really really big stuff you know like rc cars that are like you know 80 pounds like the bigfoot style rc cars then you can get in that weird threshold where you could do like reservoir uh cylinders where you have that much travel in the um in the uh, in the piston or in the cylinder of the uh, yeah. shock, where you kind of need that. But for the most part, these small guys, you know, you've got you know half an inch of travel at most, even on some of these big ones. Maybe an inch of travel. Uh, most of it's just cl clearance underneath. Now you do have like the style of the um, powertrain can be mimicked to the real thing. So like the off-road one, I'm looking matches like the uh, like Baja style or uh, off-road racer, where it's got a of a, um, a rear axle it's not independent suspension it's got a rear axle uh, but it's got a four dog bone link suspension system in the back so it can articulate kind of in a weird style so it replicates pretty close to what's actually done in terms of geometry yeah. um and of, of course some of it's plastic versus metal tie rods things like that it's got uh anti-sway bars but uh as components but of course little wires instead of you know an inch yeah, tube yeah. but 
like a coat hanger, like yeah. a, a CNC <laughs> bent coat hanger exactly. yeah. as a sway bar. Yeah. I can only imagine that some of the, the more uh, upscale and higher end RC cars probably cost as much as a real car. Because when you think about it, you're talking about like something scaled down. Right. Uh, and, and, but also matching the performance yeah. of something else. You're probably talking high cost because I, I, you know, I, I can imagine that uh, you're using a lot of Swiss watchmaking techniques <laughs> to make right. small car automotive components. Yeah, yeah, I'd definitely. actually love to see if, uh, if there was a Swiss watchmaker that would be willing to change some tooling around to make a little RC car. <laughs> Not going to happen. Never going to happen, but it would be sick. And they do venture in some of the exotic materials, too. So I mentioned carbon fiber. Yeah. Uh, some of the other components are made out of titanium, probably lower grade like cp 50 40 um i doubt they're using the alloy stuff and then some of the high grade steels um so they do get into some fairly exotic stuff i would say it's fairly yeah. cutting edge they're getting into telemetry data now too so the controller that i have will read the how much charge is left in the battery remotely cool. so and then you can attach your phone to it and it'll tra- and you can read your um uh, rpms of your electric motor uh, how fast you're going. There's a lot of data that's being transmitted. So, Does the controller have force feedback? So no, no. <laughs> if, that would be really cool be if, if like, the, the electronic steering rack on the car yeah. could sense you know, what kind of backlash the wheels were getting, right. and it could send that information back to the controller, and you could actually feel it in the knob or That'd whatever cool. it is you use to steer. Yeah. That'd be wild. Mine does but, have um, a, a – one last thing I just want to mention. It's got a gyroscope built into the receiver. So as, if you're going full throttle, it's it everything goes through the receiver, all the commands. So if you're going full throttle, it knows the direction and the current like pitch and yaw. I think those are the uh, mm-hmm. rotations. And if it detects that one at the back end is starting to slip out, it automatically uh, correct the steering so you maintain the same direction. Basically, I, that you blew my have, mind. <laughs> that's not trash control. What is that? I think it's a. Da- either adaptive or automatic yaw control yeah yeah but like like in gran turismo you yep. can actually turn that on or yep. turn that off if you're terrible at controlling slides or oversteer yeah i thought that was fascinating. that's really cool yeah, that was really fascinating to me and you can adjust that how strong you want that all right let's enough yeah. rc talk let's get in some articles <laughs> all right man uh the first one i actually want to get into is from robotics and automation news it talks about top robotic trends in engineering students for 21 uh, so it talks about kind of what the students are going to be looking for or what are they preparing for as they enter the market, enter the industry. Um, one thing they talked about, it's kind of glanced over it, is the cost of a robotics degree, which I wasn't too familiar with. I didn't know there's a degree in robotics, but congratulations, there is. Um, but the first main uh, group of technologies that they want to talk about is human-robotic collaboration. Uh, we've been talking about cobots have existed for a long time, but this one gets into a little bit more about using artificial intelligence and machine learning. So the robot knows what the human is doing and it can complement each other. So a couple of use cases were presented uh, several years ago where if there is an assembly, the human's doing like half of it, the robot seeing what the human is doing and then completing the tasks that the human doesn't complete. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. So things like that are that's a very simplified use case, but there the integration of human and robotics working together to complement each other uh, is an interesting use case. 
Um, Heck the, yeah. The second one they talk about is localization and navigation. Uh, this gets into kind of the uh, mobile side of automation uh, and being able to know where you are. So we look at like warehouse robots and, uh, you know, robots that are outside of the warehouse, you know, like security bots, things like that, which are uh, nascent industries. Uh, the ability to be self-aware is a thread that a lot of machines are picking up on recently now. So the ability for a robot to self-describe itself uh, kind of exists, you know, being able to draw the data, telling, uh, being able to describe what it's doing right now. And then you can add limits to see how far you are about those limits. Now being able to, for the now the ability for the robot to describe where they are in relation to something uh, is pretty important. And so when you look at like a robotic arm, where the end of arm tooling is, that's that becomes even more critical. Being able to verify the position, the accuracy, and having some type of closed loop system that uh, exists outside of the robotic arm itself for verification. And then you get into the uh, mobile side of it. Um, so that's a growing trend of being able to locate yourself. Uh, the next one is 3D printing. Um, so the idea of 3D printing has been, obviously exists for a long time, but 3D printing on a robot. So the end of arm tooling is mm -hmm. your printing head, which uh, Oak Ridge has done a couple of uh, presentations on recently on Spark. And uh, a couple of the ones they've talked about is, uh, oh, excuse me, the most recent one they talked about is uh, SkyBam. They love their acronyms, which <laughs> it still eludes me how they get to these acronyms. But the idea is, uh, if you notice on, uh, if you watch NFL or some, probably some other sports have picked it up where they have uh, kind of like a floating camera on the field. And it's basically controlled by tethers that are on these long uh, poles. So you're pulling on this tether to kind of move this uh, uh, camera around. It's not flying around. It's on these tethers. It's on cables, right? Cables, exactly. Okay. So the idea was um, if you replace that uh, camera with a printing head, so in this case, uh, Oak Ridge said, I want to print a really big structure out of concrete. So can I replace that with a printing head that'll pour concrete through its nozzle? So they can print these massive structures by, all they have to do is erect four pillars or four, four posts, attach some cabling. I, obviously, I'm still flying a lot, but you know the idea of a kind of mobile platform to print a very, very large structure exists. So the idea of attaching three printing heads to robots is you know, a growing trend. And the next presentation they're going to talk about is Medusa, where they have, I think, three... Uh, metallic printing heads uh, where they can all work together. Either they're building one structure together or they're building different sections of a structure together. Uh, and it's fascinating. And one of the theories that uh, Tom has been pushing quite a bit is using gravity as your support structure. So don't build up support structure, actually articulate the piece around so you use gravity to support yourself as you're growing. So I thought that was very fascinating to um, talk about the integration of 3D printing on robot heads. Where else had I heard that line. before? I think we did an article um, a couple weeks ago, uh -huh. or probably months ago, actually. But yeah, yeah, we, we, I, 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 there was something about that recently that, uh, <laughs> you know, some, uh, probably some researcher got a whole buttload of uh, grant money for just being like, you know, we could just turn the thing upside down, <laughs> <laughs> print upside down, and everything would be okay. Wait, yeah. where you know, the first one, the first one we ran across was um, uh, some Scandinavian country was trying to print a metallic 3D bridge using robots that would approach each other. That was a yeah. couple of years ago, and I, that's fascinating. And then um, 
uh, Hackrod was one of the first kind of bigger companies that are from Siemens that was looking at, um, you know, creating a a plat a uh, automotive platform uh, through like generative design, so you get a very optimized um, substructure, and then they would use robots to print the entire structure. And I thought that was fascinating too. Yeah, man. Now I'm really like bothered that I can't remember. That's right. We'll find it for the next. That is. For the but next the, definitely the new thing, the new innovation in that article you just mentioned is, uh, you know, setting up towers yeah. and having your print head run along cables. I can imagine that you would probably want, you know, because you know, one of the things that we hear a lot in this industry is making the machine that does the manufacturing have having that be smaller right. than the part you're producing and you're getting there with that. If right. you just have like four towers mm-hmm. and then, you know, high tension cables, right. well, you would need some serious high tension cables to support something with enough material that you wouldn't have constantly be reloading it, you know? Well, their, their um, feeder is a tube. So they're, you only have to hold the weight of just that tube and that head. Okay. And they're driving okay. the, uh, concrete into that tube onto the printing head interesting i could imagine like with large structures though that tube could get heavy maybe they could do something like you know, use a standard uh um um construction crane mm-hmm. just to help support some of the weight we, there we can link the uh spark uh interview with uh about skybam from Oak Ridge National Labs, and you guys should definitely check out the video. And then I would love to, yeah. And then come back, love to hear come that. back with the questions uh, in a couple of weeks. I recommend watching that. All right, see, so let's talk about your article. You got one on uh, was it e waste? Yeah, I got two articles on e waste and some color commentary. Let's do it. That uh, I threw in myself, but um, yeah, I'm not going to mention one of the articles just because it wasn't very manufacturing related. But um, there is a at least this week. Uh, the news um, highlighted a huge push towards combating e-waste and just uh, plastic pollution in general. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, we've got, you know, an insane amount of tonnage of plastics swirling around in the ocean, both floating and that have submerged and sunk down to the depths of the ocean that we haven't really explored that much in Frankly, at this point, we might not want to, but, um, you know, that all that plastic is in the ocean is Mm non-recyclable, which I think there's a Netflix series on, you know, the the, the false advertisement of recyclability and recycling plastics. And it's really awful. But um, anyway, the, the the biggest way to combat this is just changing the materials we're using. Right. And one one cool article that I came across was this lady, uh, and I forgive me. I hope she forgives me for butchering the pronunciation of her name, but I think her name is Shweta Agarwala. Um, is doing a huge amount of research and has gotten received some serious grant money mm-hmm. um, to develop a well, she's a researcher uh, and expert in printed control boards. Cool. Um, not printed control boards, printed circuit boards, PCBs. And she's um, been giving given a huge amount of money and for this project to develop, uh, at least her goal is to develop a biodegradable 
media or or material that would go into printed circuit boards to replace you know the conventional materials like uh, silicon or fr4 mm-hmm. and you know that would be really cool obviously um but of course when you make materials specifically plastics um that are typically not biodegradable, mm-hmm. biodegradable. There are some downsides that we've seen in the auto industry right. over the past few years. Um, I absolutely recall Lexus and now Porsche as well are using a lot of uh, soy plastics okay. in their wiring harnesses and wiring looms. Um, Lexus is trying to use it wherever they possibly can. Um, but the huge downside to that is uh, two things, premature um, biodegrading. Sure. You know, you don't want you don't want to street park your car and, you know, <laughs> especially if you're locked up at home and quarantined and not really driving anywhere for a couple months. You don't want to come outside to your street parked vehicle and find out that half of it has degraded <laughs> because of, uh, you know it's biodegradable right. you know right. um and and that actually is a serious concern but another concern that uh, a lot of uh, uh porsche owners are a bit up in arms about is that uh the soy plastics used in a lot of porsche's wires are uh, apparently really tasty to little rodents <laughs> so, so uh you know obviously you know the rodent will will stop when it gets to the hard metal right. of a wire but it eats away at all of the uh the the, the biodegradable shielding <laughs> you know the metal's easy metal is easy to uh to uh, recycle right. you know it can be melted down and repurposed but uh, the plastics need to be biodegradable, and that's what they did. Uh, and now they're finding that the rodents <laughs> will eat the eat away at the wires, uh, the wire shielding, and this causes a lot of huge amount of problems that will just only pile up when you have an expensive <laughs> German car like that. And uh, the last one of the last things you want is to short a. Uh, short a circuit in your uh, expensive <laughs> ecu yeah. so uh that is fascinating because have you seen just the wire harnesses in a card like just sitting like on a board or anything so i have not well i for like you know yes i've seen that okay. in some cases but i've also seen i can only imagine how insane it is yeah. on something like a porsche right. because you know, I've I've seen the bumper taken off the the front and rear bumper taken off of my car. Mm-hmm. You know, you t- you take off the bumper and then you see an aluminum structural uh, crash bar or support bar, and there's some foam behind it. Right. But a lot of it's air behind that bumper. That plastic bumper is a lot of air and a lot of empty space because the other main purpose of that plastic fascia is aerodynamics. Right. Um. I've also shockingly seen a bumper removed, a front bumper removed from, it was either a Porsche Panamera or like a Porsche Cayenne. Mm -hmm. And there's so much going on. There's not (laughs) a lot of empty space in a Porsche. They have mastered packaging. And now I understand why they're such a pit (laughs) to work on. Uh, I haven't touched one myself to work on, but, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, uh, dude, there is no empty space no, behind those. No. I'll call you when I have to change the uh, engineer filter on mine. I would love to see it. <laughs> I'd a, love to see it. I'm, but, I'm not excited for that. 
but you know the the point of uh the amount of wire harnesses on a car um it's it's incredible even like like the baseline hyundai which is just a four-cylinder engine it's got a gas and a brake and a steering wheel there's still tons and tons of wiring that's involved you know probably close to hundreds of feet uh and that's just automotive right when you talk about scaling that to like aerospace now you're running the lengths of the aircraft with wire harnesses right obviously they're may not they're probably concerned about uh, their qualification of that material is probably a little different but the impact and uh, scale and then when you talk about where this resides in our membership you know companies producing this equipment i've got this big warehouse where i've got you know 30 mils and i've got the possibility of food in each of my machines that rodents want to get in and eat up eat them up that's uh that's interesting it's a problem i never considered in the probably a lot of people yeah. didn't consider <laughs> soy is delicious yeah. <laughs> it, it would certainly add potentially add a few steps to manufacturing sure. because it's it's never been a consideration before right. at right. least to my knowledge it's never been a consideration in manufacturing something to uh need to implement okay uh, like a pesticide coating sure. yeah, exactly. something so that would be new yep all right. The next article I've got talks about it's uh, robotics again. Um, it's from uh, Nature World, but they talk about uh, the growth in uh, industrial robots. So it talks about uh, industrial robots for sale. Why are industrial robots becoming more popular? And the reason I like this article, one, it shows how smart you are, Steve. It talks about how uh, some of the things that we've been talking about, it reinforces uh, the industrial adoption of additive as, in, as of 2021. Uh, the first key element they talk about is easy to use. Now, I wouldn't say it's the easiest thing to do. Obviously, a pen and paper is easy to use. It's not to that scale. But the shift on implementing robots nowadays to uh, getting the, the ability to get them programmed and running is easier now. So, And it talks about how easy it is for other industries to adopt their implementations also. So it gets into hospitality, agriculture, healthcare. And that raised my eyebrow a little bit because it, when you're talking about automation and robots, you know, it's a big scale. It's a whole variety of things. It's not these single arm robots that you're going to see in the factory or Delta arms, you know, it talks about the broader sense of automation or, you know, being able to uh, um, uh, offload workload and repetitive tasks to a machine. So when you talk about hospitality, right, um, having uh, autonomous robots go from room to room, delivering food, delivering uh, towels, uh, agriculture, you're seeing John Deere go to autonomous uh, combines. Yeah. Um, even healthcare, where to cleanse rooms, you've got robots, you know, splashing UV light and uh, decan- uh, decontamination agents in the in the room. So, uh, even seen like basic stuff of uh, medicine dispensing in healthcare. So, uh, the ability to get to something that's automated, uh, they make the statement of you don't need a special robotic programmer, which is partially true in some cases um and, and that's growing uh, that's grown quite a bit we're, uh, we're getting close to the matrix man <laughs> getting close to the matrix <laughs> where where they're just gonna keep us in pods and then there's gonna be a simulation <laughs> that we're living in uh connected with the ease of use is the, the faster deployment now this one uh, you know i would say it's partially true also where if you buy something off the shelf you know something fairly small you know on the scale that we bought our robotic arm that works off a 110 volt system, maybe 240 you can get pretty easily, or even the autonomous systems that you can program tasks to. Uh, once you get to the higher scale that you need, like 480 volts or the higher end, 
uh, equipment. Then you get into specialized power and uh, um, specialized equipment, specialized uh, safety fencing, things like that. But on the, say, smaller scale, getting to, uh, I bought a thing and I want it up and running within a couple of days seems fairly reasonable. And part of that is how the robots are trained. You know, it transitions into collaborative robots, which, you know, being able to train a robot, you know, sitting in an office and uh, defining something on a CAD system and then uh, picking and choosing and then iterating back and forth. That's one way to do it. But now you've got, you know, uh, I forgot what, uh, what the exact term is, but basically you move the robotic arm, say, remember this position and then move to the next position. And then you define a series of positions basically on the spot. And that's that process has grown quite a bit. So being able to work faster, collaboratively, faster deployment and being able to work next to each other are really interesting, uh, you know, future states for uh, that robotic uh, industry has achieved. Right. Dude, I, I love all of the automation that's that's come out mm-hmm. um, because of the pandemic, like yeah. the sanitary robots. <laughs> I remember when Siemens um, developed and went from like, you know, napkin drawing board mm-hmm. to employing sanitation robots sanitation right. automation right. in like two days right yep. they rolled that out so fast um another company that i follow on linkedin because of uh their their pedigree in global auto racing mm-hmm. pratt and miller sure apparently pratt and miller i have i don't know about if you know but i haven't been to a uh, uh an airport in forever now and i know pratt and miller apparently has robots uh, across the country in airports that are sanitizing like you know the waiting areas for to get on your plane that's awesome but i i would love that just i want to take it would be the first time i take a picture with uh, (laughs) a piece of pratt and miller technology that'd be awesome you know it's not quite i'm not quite at uh you know in france at uh the 24 hours of le mans (laughs) but uh you know, it's it's good to know that it's coming from the same yeah. minds. Now, um, you did post an article from uh, about robots from CES on one of the tech reports recently, and they showed yeah. like Samsung's robot unloading a uh, or loading a dishwasher. I was like, okay, guys, let's Ooh. take it easy. Let's not get that far ahead because that's no. that's a pretty complex task. <laughs> no, bring it to me, man. Bring it. <laughs> my, I want that. My dream right now that I'm considering thinking uh considering implementing in my house as in like in 10 years from now is taking the wet clothes out of the washing machine and putting it into the dryer if i could automate that process and you'll have to clean out the dryer uh filter also but no i don't mind doing see that's where i don't mind doing that i don't mind doing that i want a robot to take them out of the dryer and fold them for me oh man i want the folding done don't worry about moving it. I mean, that's too simple. I can do that. I can do the simple things. Well, I, I want to. Right now, I keep forgetting that I have clothes in the dish in the washing machine, so it sits there for like up to a day. I just, I want someone else to remind me that. Obviously, I have an app that will tell me when the washing machine's done. But I would like for a robot to move it and keep the things moving while I'm away. That's what I want. Yeah, I don't want anything reminding me that I have stuff in the dryer. <laughs> I've, I have a roommate for that. And I hate it. <laughs> The next uh, two things they talk about are enhanced features, uh, safety features. So this is kind of connected back to the Cobot uh, implementation where you have the ability to uh, embed safety protocols into the robot itself. So you don't have to use safety or a distance as a safety mechanism. Um, 
You can use uh, basically the touch capability and torque sensing on the robot arm itself. Uh, and also, I mean, there's a whole slew of other safety protocols that are built into automation. So you could use light curtains or, or vision systems that once you're in an automation cell, uh, it knows your proximity in relation uh, to the uh, equipment and it can slow down or speed up the equipment. So it's the collection of all of these things working together. That I think where we are today, it's not just one single thing. It's the ability, the robot to, as long as we have the correct sensors to react to the environment. That's the big takeaway on the uh, safety features. Uh, and the last thing that, uh, you know, Steve, you've mentioned quite a bit is the uh, affordability. Uh, prices, cost has come down significantly on, say, the underlying technology. So like sensors, um, motors, um, kind of the core robotic technology uh, itself has come down in price quite a bit. Um, now, I'm hoping that the end of arm tooling and back end uh, software and logic, hopefully that'll come down quite a bit because... I still feel like that there's a lot of custom work that's usually required for end-of-arm tooling, uh, unless you can use standard grippers and suction cups. But um, I feel like there's getting to more commodity style of end-of-arm tooling would be very beneficial. Mm. Um, and same same with the, the back-end side, right? Being able to define your logic and your um, programming, which gets back into the ease of implementation where companies have made significant strides in improving user interfaces for that. But getting to a faster implementation, easier implementation, I think would be very beneficial. Absolutely. Uh, what's your next article, Steve? I've got one here. more, All right. and it's on uh, additive manufacturing in the aftermarket. Okay. Um, and so th- th- this was a really cool article to read. It, it basically, you know, additive is always thought of as, you know, a, a prototyping technology, and it is – you know, in recent years, it's been used more for actual production. Sure. But what was a really cool concept uh, that this article brought to light was additive is going to make something possible that we really haven't thought of much before. And so, so let me let me pose this situation to you. You know, you need something for your car. Sure. You know, you need a, you need your replacement part because you know you want to do the work on it yourself and the dealership wants to charge you three hundred dollars to install a fifty dollar part that you know you can install yourself in 15 minutes you know so you drive yourself down to the dealership you go to the parts department and you know you ask for this part they have it in stock or they don't and they ship it to you Mm -hmm. but uh, they have it in stock they hand you the part you pay for it you go home you're on your merry way what if Instead of all that interaction, you went to your car manufacturers, the OEM's website, uh-huh. and you, 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 there was a transaction. Sure. You, you give them money, and they sent you – they give you uh, the ability to download uh-huh. for a single use or whatever, a step file, and then you – take that file to wherever you want if you don't have it yourself or you have it in your garage and you print the part for yourself. Right. That'd be cool. This article basically was like, dude, that's around the corner. That's not like some future state. Like we're on that now. There's a two groups I want to mention one on the professional level that I'll share. Uh, The department of defense is exploring that significantly. So being able to print, right. If there's a special nut bolt, they can print it at a Ford operating base. And that's, um, that's occurring right now. They want to be able to print. They're doing tests. Can I print on a naval ship? 
so they're doing those uh, theories now. The other thing that I found <laughs> surprisingly cut edge for some reason, um, uh, probably because of COVID, I've been stuck in the house. I've been watching more YouTube videos on miniature uh, painting. So like uh, Warhammer 40K or small, like, <laughs> yeah. I want to call they're called figurines, I guess. The little guys that are like- They're figurines. Two inches tall, right? Miniatures, but they spend tons of time painting them. Uh, there's a growing market of bas- basically licensing a, an object that you can print yourself. So the economics and um, digital oh. licensing agreement, that's all transacted there. It's, it's similar to, I think, uh, downloading a, a uh, what do you call it? A, a, a video or an audio file for professional services. So it gives you the license and the ability to print it. Now, I don't know if it's connected to your printer. I don't know if there's limits to the number of prints and all that stuff. But the starting point to have the ecosystem to say, hey, I have this thing, world, you can print it, but you got to pay me a license. Those are significant steps that promote that economy that allow people to get there. So like in your use case, I want to print this car part. Who gets the money for that design and that knowledge that someone's got to get paid? So yeah. that that infrastructure has to be put in place first. That'll create the motivation for the industry to say, hey, there's a new economy here. Let me get into this. It's right on the corner, Steve. It is. We're almost there. I got to stop watching miniature painting videos. <laughs> How crazy would it be if like Advanced Auto Parts or O'Reilly's or Napa, yeah. you know, you, you, you they become smaller and smaller stores. And instead they're more of like a location that has manufacturing as a service specifically for auto parts. I hope so, man. But I feeling that to keep the same size is add more printers. That stuff <laughs> yeah. is not fast. It's wild. Though, you, know, man. you mentioned the printing. So the last article I want to talk about today is from the Cambridge independent. They talk about um, getting into uh, additive as a service. Now this one that says five things to know before starting a 3d printer startup. So, if you're interested in becoming a service where you can ingest models, print stuff for people, and send it, this highlights three things. And you know, I don't think a lot. Of, I don't think everyone in the grandmother's jumping out to start a 3D business. But uh, we've been, we've had, we've hosted a couple of articles from a couple of companies. New assessments have write articles on us about kind of the business side of getting into additive. And there's a lot of questions that you may want to raise before you get into additive. And this one kind of has a couple of key bullet points that I want to talk through. One is the material uh, and the article is focusing on plastic so having your warehouse of plastics being able to make sure your supply chain for plastics is important uh, but also if you're also considering metals what does your ecosystem of metals look like these are very very specific very nuanced materials when you have different grades from different suppliers you have it's not like buying Inconel 625 per AMS, you know, 5561 or something like that. You're buying a company branded material and that propagates into your ecosystem. So that's kind of the different departure when you talk compare from raw materials versus, you know, 3D printing. Um, now, 3D printing materials, I think, is shifting towards uh, standards based um, materials uh, definition. So once that proliferates into the industry, then they'll be easier. But uh Controlling your uh, material is important. It's it's vital. Uh, the second is, where am I going to store this? How, uh, I've got this device that is temperature and pressure dependent. You know, you are going to get different shapes, different behaviors on how my printer, especially if you look at uh, plastic printing, right? I've got this open shell that if my warehouse is, say, 50 degrees one day and then 80 degrees one day, it's going to change how I melt that plastic. 
So the yeah. your ambient conditions is plays a pivotal role in the type of uh, prints that you're achieving. You could have a shelf life on certain materials. Exactly. Oh, that's a fair is point. Is that already a thing? Is that already a thing in, in other forms of manufacturing? Mm -hmm. Shelf like life is, of raw material. Is there a type of bar stock that goes bad? <laughs> well, it depends. So you've got the environmental conditions that it's in. So if it's sure. non-corrosive, so if it's uh, like a stainless steel or rust-resistant material, yeah. Yeah, you could say the, uh, the life of it is theoretically indefinite. But... If you've got something like, you know, uh, what's A2 or something like that, where you have to apply a rust inhibitor, you could say if the rust inhibitor is gone, now what happens? Now you've got a rusted piece where you don't want to machine through rust or weld through rust or m produce any parts that have rust on the outside. You've got to remove that and assuming the rust hasn't propagated all the way through. That's probably your biggest thing on when you look at metals. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you think about powdered materials uh -huh. for additive, it's... It's. I'd imagine you would run into. Uh, it sounds silly, but I'd imagine you'd run into the same problems that you would run into, you know, storing a big bag of flour in your kitchen. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That, I wish that's they'd a, make those bags smaller. And that's a fair point because when you going from like wire or uh, you know larger material to powdered material, now you concern about inhalation and explosive materials. So like mm -hmm. aluminum, right? That's very very uh, dangerous as a powdered form same with uh, powdered plastics right now you're talking about how much not only sure you might save some money when buying in bulk but mm -hmm. do you have the right safety uh, uh standards met in terms of storage mm -hmm. and how much money is it going to cost to invest in the proper storage right. uh, uh parameters and capabilities i guess and you know uh, thinking back to my old company, that was the biggest challenge I had implementing any new technology is understanding the safety requirements and overcoming those hurdles. Uh, what we're looking at is fairly difficult. So we wanted to in-source uh, X-ray capability. Uh, so uh, old company, we're doing a lot of welds and we want to do subsurface inspection using X-ray. So previously we're sending parts out every day. So if you know, one duct had five or six welds, we'll send them back and forth to get all the uh, all those welds x-rayed, reworked, and x-rayed again. We're going to insource that. Understanding the landscape of the safety requirements for x-ray took years. took a long, long time. Now we did some parallel paths wow. of finding equipment, uh, bringing in experts to make sure we're doing it. But there's local state protocols. We had a, uh, a register with the state that we had this type of equipment. We had lead walls. We had you know special wow. uh, radiation uh, devices on the people to make sure they weren't being irradiated. It got down to the nit, uh, the nitty gritty, and since we're insourcing, we became the company became the uh, uh, owners of that safety requirement. So, you know, getting over the safety protocols protocols is probably the first thing that'll uh, to wrap your head around before getting you're purchasing equipment. That's that'll tell you whether or not you want to move forward or not. You know, spend a year investigating yeah. what's required to implement this, getting over this uh, the ENH uh, protocols. Wow. The next thing the article talks about is uh, software. So if you're printing or if, obviously if you're inboarding, how, what is the workflow of some random dude outside your company providing you a model <laughs> and how do you ingest that in your workflow? And to be honest, I think that's a bigger question in manufacturing in general. You know, we get in, we're shifting to the model-based enterprise where your model contains all of your manufacturing data. I don't, you know, I, I would say we've made significant progress, but... I wouldn't say we're 100% there. I think getting to uh, being able to control 
the CAD data to a single source, single truth is the future state I want to achieve is, you know, if I'm a tier three, how do I know I have the same model that my OEM is working towards, you know, same revision, same versions, basically verifying that I'm current as much as possible. So that's a bigger question outside the article. The article is, what is your workflow? How do you print stuff? How do you ingest stuff? What's your, if you have a website, if you're going to ingest files through the website, uh, so I thought it was, a, it was a very, very valid question and applicable to all of manufacturing. And the last thing that they talk about, which I found interesting, right? So you're starting a company to print, but you only have a certain amount of capability. So what happens if you m meet your uh, capacity? And they talk about, obviously, now you've got to outsource. Now you're outsourcing outsourcing. So I thought that was a very interesting point, but the, it's very valid that you're going to reach a limit to your capacity. What happens when you reach your capacity? What's your plan? Do you want to tell people, you know, you know, you and I have been dealing in firearms for a while. Firearms, would you say, your part, you'll get your part or your firearm in six months as opposed to two weeks. They just push your date, due date out as opposed yeah. to increase or, uh, you know, outsourcing everything to maintain those um, uh, delivery dates. So I thought it was a fascinating question that what do you do when you reach capacity? That's that's just a generic question that uh, is very valid. Um, that was it, Steve. That was a good, fairly interesting article that hits on a couple of key bullets that I think are very valid questions that you can ask of any technology that you're going to insource into uh, a new manufacturing facility. And it's a really thought-provoking uh, uh, article at that, too. Um, it made me, while you were talking, I was pondering... Um, the concept of uh, just in time manufacturing. Right. Right. Um, and it, it, I feel like, you know, when we talk about, when we were talking about um, the safety standards that goes into material handling and, and material storage, um, could you get around some of that, especially with like, you know, powdered materials? Uh, could you get around some of that if you just had, if you had just in time manufacturing, so like you didn't have, you know, overhead or, or a backlog of material to use mm -hmm. that you could just, you know, dump into the hopper when you need it. But like when you get a fresh order, when the order comes down the line, may start making the ports, you turn around and boop, there's the right amount of sure. uh, powdered material for you ready to use. So there's no storage in hand. I'm sure that's how a lot of manufacturers would like it in an ideal world but of course we don't live in an ideal world so i'm sure some <laughs> some storage is necessary well it's true of any raw material right so if i even if i'm a subtractive manufacturing house if the part i'm making is made out of brass i have to have brass somewhere in my ecosystem the question is who's going to hold that brass right so you go yeah. from this mine that exists somewhere in asia where you extract everything to a foundry that foundry has probably another foundry that they ship it to to a distributor mm -hmm. there's several layers yeah a finery yeah. there's several layers before it gets to a place where you can go to a website and say buy me this five inch bar of uh you know brass uh so the question is where in that ecosystem is going to reside uh and who's going to hold that system so the you know I, th I think it's a very valid question of um controlling your inventory to meet your uh, on-demand needs um it's it's got a lot of work to do i think but yeah all right steve man where can they find more info about us they find more but i don't know why i get hung up on this question <laughs> lately uh you got some notes am amtnews.org slash subscribe how hard was that and i get <laughs> easy just 
amtnews.org slash subscribe is how you follow us or you just go to amtnews.org uh in general and browse around and look for something that uh that interests you and uh enjoy awesome take care everyone bye everybody